This year, starting out a new year, I feel like I'm starting to get back into rhythms again. We've had a lot going on around the holidays. You probably have too. For me, part of getting back into rhythm is getting into a new series. Where are we going in God's Word? So I'm excited about a new series in the book of Thessalonians that I'm going to call Foundations for Growth. Foundations for Growth. And what I mean by that is this book speaks to us about what does it take to plant and grow faith in Jesus. What does it take for people around you? What does it take for people you care about? What does it take to plant faith in Jesus for them in their lives? They don't presently believe. What does it take to plant and to grow, to nurture, to bring along, take next steps in following Jesus? What does it take to plant and grow faith in Jesus? In this year, we're going to focus on positioning BP Church for God's future for us. What is it that God has for us? What do we need to be doing to be stepping toward that future that God has for us? This is going to include focusing on what I'll phrase as building out and building in. Two different kinds of building. What those two different kinds of building include, first of all, we have got some facilities questions that we're going to need to work through and, and come to some conclusions as a church uh, concerning some of our buildings replacing perhaps our, our um, education building that stands out there on the corner. That's a big decision that will be before us in this, er, perhaps early in this new year as we take next steps toward building out. But also there are some other things that we need to strengthen to build up inwardly as a church family. Things that will help us to invite others into faith in Christ and into God's family. As we consider what are our needs for church building, we also need to focus this year on what is needed to build the church that uses the building. What is needed to grow and build as a church that could plant and grow another church? What would that look like? What does it take? What does, it, what does it take, not necessarily in one big goal, but what does it take day by day with us in the lives of others? We want to help more people have life in Christ by going to people around us, by bringing others into the family of, of God, by building them up as followers of Jesus. That's what we want to be doing. That's what Christ gave us to do, right? To help more people have life in Christ by going to them, by bringing them into God's family, by building them up and following Jesus. That's, that's pretty basic. It's pretty, it's pretty foundational. That's what any church should be about. But today, for us, in this corner at this time, what does it take? What does it take to plant and grow a church? What does it take to plant and to grow faith in the life of someone? Today, our society is becoming less Christian and more like the first century. That can be a little intimidating. Things are not like they once were. We cannot take for granted the things we used to take for granted. We cannot assume what we used to assume. You read these numbers about less people attending church and people identifying themselves as not affiliated with any recognized religion. And, and part of that is changes in our culture in a postmodern and a post-Christian Western world that there's not a societal reason to go to church if you're not a genuine born-again believer. And so less people are just going to church because they're part of a so-called Christian society. It's a post-Christian society. And we're experiencing that more and more. 
Now, that suggests that in that post-Christian society, it could be harder. That society could be more antagonistic to the gospel of another King Jesus, a gospel that contradicts the accepted norms of the society. That's a lot more like the first century, actually. As you read through the New Testament, you're going to find that sounding a lot like, a lot more like our experience day by day and week by week. I think it's an exciting time for us as a church to be in the middle of. Now, in the first century, the book of 1 Thessalonians gives us a unique look. It's unique among Paul's letter. Paul planted many churches, and yet this is the only one I can think of where he writes back to the church fairly recently, within a couple of months after he departs from the church, he writes back to them, and when he writes back to them, he describes what he did while he was there. He describes what he did among them that God used to plant and grow faith in Jesus in the lives of others. That gives us a unique look in this letter. What does it take to plant and grow a church? What does it take to plant and grow faith in Jesus for followers of him? So as we look into 1 Thessalonians, that's what we're going to, we're going to be seeking to, to, to help us step into the answer to that question. Now, how did we get this letter? The, how, where does this church come from? What's the, what's the context into which the things that are written are written? Well, in Acts chapter 17, Paul, he's, he has recently arrived in Europe, first goes, comes across the north end of, of Europe, northern Greece, we would know it today, in, in to, into the city of Philippi. After Philippi, they, 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 they journey down the main road to another major city, Thessaloniki. And in Thessaloniki, or you know it as Thessalonica, in Thessalonica, uh, he, he, he goes to the synagogue, and there he proclaims the gospel. He unfolds out of the Old Testament, out of the Scriptures, in the synagogue, both to Jewish people as well as to non-Jewish people who also went to the synagogue, were interested in, were attracted to this God of Israel, as was supposed to happen by their faith, should, was meant, intended to attract others. And so other people also would hear Paul in the synagogue, and after three weeks, there was quite a crowd. And it stirred up hostility among even the leaders of the synagogue. And they stirred up others in the city and they said, those who have turned the world upside down. That's how they took the Christian life and its impact into a culture, into a city, into a community. Isn't that wonderful? Becoming a Christian changed a person. And when people then became Christians, it changed their group, it changed their neighborhood, it changed their community. It turned the world upside down. They were not following the norms of the Roman world. They were following another king, Jesus, doing what he said instead of what Rome said. That's a wonderful thing. And, and so they stir up this crowd, and, there's the, and basically to, to keep the Christians from being, being troubled further and further penalized and imprisoned and so forth, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they slip out of town. They go on to Berea. They end up in, in Athens. Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Apparently, he sends Silas to Philippi to see where these churches that we started but then had to leave, how were they doing? What's going on there? Did they continue in faith, or did that faith fade? And Paul, uh, uh, Paul waits in Athens, then he goes on to Corinth, and when he's in Corinth, Timothy comes back to him, Silas joins, and they give a wonderful report of what's going on in those churches. 
We don't have a letter that Paul writes back to Philippi. We have this letter that Paul writes at that moment from Corinth, just a couple of months after he left, back to the church at Thessaloniki. So this is what, and, and, and there he describes, he reminds them of how they were while they were there, and he exhorts them in things that the church needs to continue in. This is that glimpse into the first century, into a real Paul church plant that we can look at. That's how we're going to look at this letter. Not just as a collection of things that we're told about our God and about things that we should do. There's, that is there. But what did it take in that moment in history, which is not dissimilar to our moment in history, what does it take to plant and grow the gospel of Jesus in the lives of others? That's what we're after here as we go forward. So, Paul, Paul has, as, as, as we open the book, there's some key aspects I want to encourage you to look at. I want to encourage you to read this book in entirety. In fact, there's a closing statement that Paul makes where he insists to the leaders of the church that this letter goes to read the whole letter, all of it, to everyone in the church. Because they didn't have their own copies. You do. You've got a Bible. I hope you brought it with you. Maybe you have a Bible at home. You have a Bible on your phone or, your, or, 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 or a tablet or a Kindle. And read the whole book. Read all of 1 Thessalonians. Read that several times as we're going through it over the next couple of months. Paul says he, he solemnly charges them to read the whole letter. We're not going to read the whole letter every Sunday. We will read it uh, verses by verses as we go through it. But I encourage you to read the whole letter. If you don't have a Bible... You're visiting this morning and say, what is this thing? There's one in the bench in front of you. Take it with you. That's now yours because I want you to read this letter. Think of it as God's letter through Paul to you and I as well as to these Christians. Things you're going to find there, there's a trilogy of faith and love and hope. These are key aspects that keep popping up through the book. We're going to talk about them some this morning. Each chapter closes on a note of hope. Each chapter closes talking about their hope in Christ's coming. That fuels their continuing in their faith. We're going to see as Paul describes his ministry in Thessalonica, as he encourages them to continue that ministry, that that ministry in the first century, planting a church, growing faith, was a very relational ministry. It was very life-on-life, person-to-person, engaged in the lives of others. It was family language, brothers and sisters. We were among you like a caring mother, like a loving father with his own children. We shared with you not only the gospel, but our own lives. You became dear to us. You are our joy. We pray for you. We've been concerned about you. We long to see you face to face. It's a very personal, interpersonal, relational, involved in the lives of one another kind of letter. Paul's ministry among them was word-centered. It was very centered on what God has said. It underscores the place of God's word in a believer's lives, how God's word changes our lives. The gospel turned their world upside down because the gospel turns individual believers' lives right side up. This letter continues to engage them. Their lives aren't perfect. This letter continues to engage. There are things that we need to continue in. We need to take next steps in. We're going to focus on those. You especially see that exhorted in chapter 4 and chapter 5. This book describes a spiritual life with God. It's not just God's up there, we're accountable to him, so these are the things that we need to know and we need to do. Paul describes his life in and among them with God. It's as if God is present with him as he ministered to them then, as he thinks of them now. 
He describes a life living and serving in relationship with God, thanking God, following the Lord in what he does. God is our witness. God knows what he is doing. He knows the sincerity of his heart. You are our joy before the Lord. Paul sees himself in the Lord's presence. He instructs them on how to walk and to please God, that their lives please God like a children, a, a child for his parent. God has destined us to live with him. Again, that relational aspect, and yet now it's us and God in relationship. All of this and more in five fast chapters. It's a lot to include. Yet in these ways, this book especially, especially uniquely, gives us a chance to look inside a first century church plant. And what could we learn about that? How do we step into it? What does it take to plant and grow a church? We take that down one layer. What does it take for you or I to be used by God to plant and grow faith in Jesus in the lives of someone? What happened when Paul, Silas, and Timothy rolled into Thessalonica? What happened then? What did it look like? What did they do? Let's read about it. First Thessalonians chapter 1. From verse 1, we'll read the first five verses. I think if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 986. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and, the, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, and when it says brothers there, it means brothers and sisters. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also empowered in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. First of all, what does it look like when the gospel is planted and nurtured and growing in the lives of others? What does it look like in someone's life when Paul is working? Paul thanks God because of his working in the lives of these new Christians. As he describes that in verse 3, it's parallel in verses 9 and 10. Your work of faith, how you turned to God from idols. Your labor of love, how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God. And the steadfastness of your hope to wait for his son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath. The reality of that change can be described this way. Their faith, their belief in Jesus as Savior, that work was manifest. Their faith was evident. Their faith was obvious. It was demonstrated in specific actions. There were things that they no longer did. They turned to God from idols. There were things that were new that now they do, that they didn't do before. There were changes in their lives, and this was the working of their faith. James would have looked at this church and agreed with Paul, yes, their faith worked. It had its effect. It was manifest, it was shown, it was demonstrated. Not that that demonstration earned anything, but it was the evidence of real life that was manifest within them. 
There was a definite change, a definitive change. They were not perfect. In chapter 4, he's going to go on to exhort them and challenge them to go further, to take another step. But their faith worked. It changed their lives. You know, just this week, one day this week, there were two different guys that I talked to in the course of the day that each of them described a conclusion that they had come to, a decision that they had made that was a, a corner, was a change in direction. And it would come with some cost. It would come with some difficulty. There was some risk involved in that decision. They were putting themselves out there because they were trusting God with what he had made clear to them. This is what they needed to do. Man, I love that. That's the kind of thing that keeps a pastor going. Seeing people make sacrificial life change decisions in response to God's word and his spirit leading them. That's what it's all about. That is next step in the Christian life. That's what it looks like to walk with the Lord. The work of faith leading to a labor of love for others because of Jesus. Their labor of love indicates a new motivator. There's a new relationship with God. It's a, it's a relationship based on love rather than law. Not I have to, but now I want to. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says the love of Christ compels us. It pushes us. It presses us. It makes us want to do things that we didn't even care about before. Love for God pushes us in toward love for others. Like a mom does for her baby, like a husband for his wife, the choices that we'll make because we love. It's a new motivator. There are changes in them that have continued. There's a steadfastness. Paul wondered what has happened with their hope. What is, has their faith continued? And they have a steadfast hope, and a steadfast hope continues them in this life change that God has worked in them through his word. Did you notice the past, present, and future aspect of that life change? They have believed what God has done for them in the past, and there was a point in time when they believed Jesus as their Savior. He died in their place to give them new life in him, that he is their acceptance before the, God, before the Father, that God himself has embraced them in his love and indwelt them by his Spirit, empowered them through his grace because of what Jesus did for them. That past working of God that they have believed in has produced a present Labor of love. And that labor of love continues and is fueled and is strengthened not because of how drastically their life has gotten easier now that they believe in Jesus. How all of their troubles have now vanished because now they believe in Jesus. How God miraculously has poured on them all of these abundant physical manifest blessings. There are two new cars in the driveway. There is a new refrigerator where that old one kept being too warm and food was spoiling. And all of a sudden the debts that we had racked up, they're just gone. We don't even need to go to Financial Peace University. It's wonderful. Look at the prosperity God has brought. That, that's, that's not why they're continuing. They're continuing in that labor of love. It's a hard work, roll up your sleeve kind of labor word because of a steadfastness, a continuing in hope, which is a confident expectation that everything God has said is going to be true. Everything God has promised is going to be realized. Not necessarily in this moment. Not necessarily answering all of my wants for today. But God's word is true. His promise is sure. And what God has said, you and I can count on. It'll be true forever. It'll be our experience for eternity. And they continue in that confident expectation of the future. 
these genuine changes in their real lives that turned their lives upside down, or I like to say right side up, going down to up, contrary to everybody's expectations, they were the result of three key factors. Three things described here in these opening verses how God works. That God works by His Word and His Spirit through our lives. In this case, it was through Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they are the examples of just how God will also work by his Spirit and his Word through you in the lives of others. Let's, let's take a look at how that works. What does, God, what does it take to plant and grow followers of Jesus? Let me say it very clearly first. What does it take to plant and grow followers of Jesus? It takes God working by his Word and his Spirit through you. God working by his word and his spirit through you, you and I. That's how it happens. To put it another way, the outcome described, work of faith, labor of love, steadfast of hope in verse 3, that outcome that is wonderful, revolutionary, radical, that outcome comes from, it's the result of verses 2 and 4 and 5. What's well, in verses 2 and 4 and 5? And that matters, doesn't it? Look at verse 2 again. God working. The outcome Paul has seen, the joy that it gives him, the good report from Timothy, the continued faith, the growth, the witness, all of these are things that Paul is giving thanks to God for. God, I am so glad. I thank you for what I did among the Thessalonians. No, that's not what Paul's doing, is it? God, I thank you for what you have done among the Thessalonians. And yet, how did God do it? <laughs> Paul and Silas and Timothy showed up. And God did it. God did it. God is working here. Boy, that ought to give us such, a, such a, a, a freedom and confidence that it is not up to me. God is working here. God will, God will continue to keep and to grow them. And Paul is praying, and God is going to continue to keep them. One of the ways he continues to keep them and grow them is through a letter written by Paul, a real flesh and blood person like you and I. God is working, but he does his working through you and I. Using his word by the power of his spirit. That's how it happens. God is at work here. In fact, this life change, Paul says, this is an evidence in verse 4 that God has chosen them. God is involved here. God is at work. And so in verse 5, Paul says the gospel didn't come to them in word only. I want to pause there for a minute. The gospel, our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, St. Francis is credited with the phrase, Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. What do you think of that? Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, the only problem with that wonderful statement is Francis didn't say it. In fact, it's not found in any of his writings. It's not found in any of his biographer's writing. It's not found in any of his disciples' writings. It doesn't show up, in fact, in church history until several hundred years after Francis. Francis didn't say that. Francis founded an order of preaching friars. They're called the Franciscans. Surprise. So Francis seemed to believe in preaching the verbal word. What did Francis say? Well, there's something that Francis says in one of his rules for his disciples. In fact, I think it's rule 1212. That's a lot of rules, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. That makes me quite happy that I'm not one of Francis's disciples. That's a lot of rules to remember. 
But this rule basically said that the preacher's deeds needed to be in harmony with the gospel. The preacher himself, if he's going to be a a Franciscan preacher, he better practice what he preaches. That's as simple as that. That's what Francis said in his rules to his disciples. Because, quite frankly, you cannot preach the gospel without words. The gospel is a very verbal thing, and you cannot preach the gospel without words. You can't share the good news without words, but you dare not share it with words only. Something else is needed. Or it's just words. Or my friend back in Alabama used to say, it's just water off a duck's back. Paul says the gospel was impactful because it came not only in word, but in power. That is, in the Holy Spirit. And so with full conviction, full persuasion, Now, another letter, a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul describes both his public speaking, like in a setting like this, and his private individual conversations. He described both of those were not by rhetorical wisdom or by plausible arguments. You know, if a person says this, then you need to say that. And if they say this, well, this is the answer that will probably convince them. That's not how Paul operated That's not how he spoke publicly. It's not how he had his personal conversations. But those conversations and his public speaking were by the working of the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon said to preachers who would preach publicly in a pulpit, if the preacher is not filled by the Spirit, he has no business in the pulpit. And so you and I also have nothing to say to people around us if we are not filled by the Spirit, that he would use us in that conversation. We are not led by under the influence, can I say it that way, under the influence of God's Spirit when we would share the gospel with others because it's the Spirit who brings that persuasion, that conviction. And it's not out of, some people read that verse, that the gospel came with power and by the Holy Spirit and they assume that that power and by the Spirit, that conviction comes from signs and wonders and miracles. And yet Jesus, though he did many signs and wonders and miracles that evidenced who he was, he put that notion to rest when he described that story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is already now, he has died and he's in a place of torment and he's separated from the poor man, Lazarus, who's in Abraham's bosom. And he says, there's no way for for anybody to cross over and give him even a drink of water in his place of torment. So he says, well, Abraham, would you at least send somebody, send Lazarus to go back and to tell my brothers and warn them so that they don't have to come to this place. And what does Jesus say? Well, the words Jesus puts in Abraham's response are, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, then they won't even believe even if someone were to come back from the dead. They won't believe by that great a miracle. When they asked Jesus for a sign, he said, no, no sign's going to be given. No sign's going to be given except the sign of Jonah. In three days, he would rise from the dead. And you know what the greatest sign, the greatest miracle that authenticates the gospel today is resurrection. Not historically going back to Jesus' resurrection, although that is true, but the resurrection of Jesus in the life of a believer. That's what Paul goes to here. In verse 5, there's an interesting There's an interesting connection in verse 5 that as God is working by his Spirit, this convincing, this persuading, we might think it's the Spirit giving us the right words to say at the right time. 
I think it's more than that. It's, it's more about, by the Spirit, being the right thing at the right time. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, we see the Spirit's working in persuasive power that convinced people included, you know what kind of people we were among you for your sake. You see, in most of our English translations, like the NIV or the ESV, in just in the translation style, they leave out some of the conjunctions, some of the joining uh, words that are in the original Greek language. The New American Standard is, is the best. It sometimes reads more awkwardly for that reason because it's trying to be more specifically accurate with all the connections and sometimes very long sentences from Greek into English. But it includes that conjunction which you would read as just as, in the same way, in this way. So let me add that in and read, read that verse again. Our gospel came to you, verse 5, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men or persons we prove to be among you for your sake. One aspect, at least, of the Holy Spirit's persuasion was their relational authenticity. You know what kind of people we were among you. You have to be among people for them to know what kind of people you are among them, right? That's what Ryan was talking to us about last week, that, that we, we have been made different, and we are to live differently before others and with others and among others. We need to be going to people where they are. We can no longer in this generation, we can't wait for people to come to church. We need to go to people where they are that we might introduce them to our Savior. That, that um, Greek conjunctive adverb, kathos, just as in the, in, the, in the New American Standard, they were known to people so that their care for others was seen and received as authentic. They got out there among people. We could say that the work of faith, labor of love, the steadfastness of hope that was in Paul and Silas and Timothy is what made the difference among the Thessalonians. God's working in them, seen by others. That's why I say the, the, the proof of the gospel is in the resurrection. And the proof of the resurrection is seen in the resurrected life of Christ in, however poorly or weakly, in our lives. That's where it's seen. That's where the reality comes. What kind of people we were among you for your sake giving our lives away for the sake of others. That's what it looks like. We were, we were at dinner last night. Julie and I joined a, a, a group, and um, there were 10 of us around the table, and one of them was sharing something they had, they had got from the, from the missions conference, I think it was, on Friday night, and, or on Friday. And this, the, the challenge was, in terms of going to others, the challenge was, take out your phone, and look at your phone, at your messaging app, how many of the last 50 messages, how many of those messages, how many of those text conversations were to an unbeliever or with an unbeliever? Because you think about how much do I talk to unbelievers? Well, I don't really remember, and I'll probably remember more uh, positively than actually happens. But your messaging app keeps a record for you. Scroll back through. 
How much do you connect, dialogue with, engage with? And what is the quality of those conversations with people who you know who don't know Jesus and who could know of him through you? We need to go too if we're going to bring in and build up. And that's what, that's what Paul describes. That he was so to them and before them and among them and with them that they knew the authentic working of God in their lives. They could see it and they wanted some of that. We don't know what you've got, Paul, but we want that too. They saw a reality that was there that was impactful. Now, there's a balance. There's a balance. I, I could say, well, gee, here we were at a, at a, at a table of ten a whole group of Christians having dinner together. Why didn't we invite any non-Christians to be in our midst? There's a balance. There's a balance of being with one another and building up one another and following Jesus. But we're building up one another and following Jesus so that we can go too, so that we can bring others in, so that we can build them up. And so we have to balance that. We have to include that. I am not saying stop going to church and go out after people. The writer to Hebrews said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because that's where, that's where strengthening, that's where feeding, that's where building up happens so that we can go to others around us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 shows what it, that it takes God's working by his word through our real, even though imperfect lives. That's how the gospel is planted and grown in the lives of others. God working by his spirit in powerful persuasion. Man, that takes the pressure off you and I, doesn't it? It's not up to me. It's not how well I do it. God will use me. As imperfect as I am, our serving, submitting ourselves for the needs of others as God's different people, living differently before, around, and for others. Wasn't it interesting when Ryan, Ryan last week, he was working through Second, or rather 1 Peter chapter 2 and going into chapter 3, and the key way that we live differently was to submit in one way, in another way, in another way, submitting, submitting, submitting. Did you ever wonder why is it that God is so wrapped up in, in our submitting? Maybe you wrestle with that. What was the essence of the fall? It was rebelling against submission to God and trusting him and insisting on humanity's own way. We're going to do it our way. We're going to decide for ourselves what's wrong and what's right. Doesn't that sound like the age around us? And yet submitting to God is trusting God with what he says, even if it's contrary to what the world around us, the society, the culture around us says. Submitting ourselves to one another. Submitting ourselves, yielding, surrendering for the sake, for the good, for the better of others. That looks like Jesus. That's what he did. He yielded himself, he submitted, he surrendered himself even to death for our sakes. When they see a little Jesus in us, man, the difference, the difference that can make. Paul prays. Paul thanks God. Paul prays for them in their continuing because God is at work here. God is at work here and it's through his word. We want to be using the lives of others. We need to be clear about the gospel. We need to be clear about what it is that they need to know about Jesus for them in a real relationship with God. And he has been yielded to God's working in us, which prepares the way for God working through us. There are things in this song to obey, and, or in this, in this chapter to live and obey. And there was something in the song that we just sang that reminded me of that. 
It says, now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. It'll come by his spirit, and yet that is exactly what God has said that he will do. God, through his word, or by his word and his spirit, through you and I for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would work through us. Father, I want to pray. I'm going to stop now and just, Lord, give us a chance to think. Give us a chance to put before you, Lord, who would you send us to? Who would you have us to get nearer to? Who would you have us to strengthen a friendship, to listen better so that we might better speak, to be able to be real with in the midst of their own hurts and even ours, that we could come near. And life to life, heart to heart, there we could share real hope that is in Jesus. Father, perhaps this week, who would you have us near? Who would you have us around? Who would you use us? Father, we want to be a church that, that will go to We'll bring others in to your family. We'll build one another up. Lord, we want to do that by being individuals sent by you and wherever you have placed us in the busyness of life. In these places, Father, would you use us to go to, to be with, to be for, to bring into God's family for their sakes. Lord, as we receive this morning's offering, it reminds us that we yield not only what we have, but Father, we yield ourselves to you to be used for the advance of your turning lives right side up gospel for the sake of others. Use this offering, Lord, use our own lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen.